Hello, my name is Moriarty and this is part 9 of my deep dive into the history of video games. 2009, a year that epitomized the commercialization of the video game industry as it transformed from a niche hobby to a booming mainstream phenomenon. Conventions like E3, BlizzCon, QuakeCon, ScrewAttackCon, and PAX began to proliferate, and gaming became a pastime for people of all ages and backgrounds. It's clear that the gaming landscape was shifting, with new players entering the scene and established companies looking to innovate. One prime example is the mid-generation console release of the PS3 Slim setting a trend that would be followed by competitors for generations to come. However, the most notable change in 2009 was the now undeniable success of Nintendo's Wii. With a staggering 7 out of the top 10 best-selling games that year, the Wii's casual focus console continued to dominate, even outselling heavy hitters like Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and Assassin's Creed 2. It's clear that the shift in demographics played a crucial role in the rise of casual gaming. The Wii's accessible and family-friendly design attracted a broader audience, and the industry was no longer catering solely to the hardcore gamers, but rather embracing a new, wider audience. Companies began to approach game design and marketing from a different angle. Behind closed doors, however, Nintendo's Wii was experiencing some hiccups. The Wii was still selling very well but the lack of third-party games was becoming apparent. The consoles were starting to collect dust in people's homes. In many ways, the mainstream success of gaming was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, a broader audience and more significant profits allowed for greater investment in innovative game concepts and technologies. The gaming industry expanded, and new opportunities arose for game developers and publishers alike. On the other hand, the commercialization of gaming meant that there was an increased pressure to create games that would appeal to the mass market. As a result, some argued that the industry began to prioritize profit over creativity, leading to an oversaturation of safe, formulaic titles. While it opened doors for innovation and inclusivity, it also risked stifling creativity by prioritizing mass appeal. Meanwhile, Electronic Arts announced an initiative known as Project $10. This was EA's attempt to curb the sales of used games by offering incentives for customers to keep their new games. The concept was simple. When you purchased a new copy of an EA game, you would receive free downloadable content. However, if you bought a used copy of the same game, you would have to pay $10 to access this content. This strategy was implemented in games like Mass Effect 2's Cerberus Network, Dragon Age's DLC Network, and the launch add-ons for Bad Company 2. Project $10 was seen as a controversial move. While it was framed as an effort to improve the consumer experience, it was also viewed as a way to discourage used game sales and increase profits. Companies like GameStop were loudly announcing that they made more profit off a $29.99 used game than a $59.99 new game. Add in that video games were still considered a luxury item and the world was still in the tail end of the Great Recession that started in 2007, and it's easy to see how a company like EA might not take such a bold claim very well. The Project $10 initiative marked a significant shift in the industry's approach to used games and DLC, and it sparked a debate about the value of new versus used games. How has the shift in demographics changed the way companies approach game design and marketing? 
Do you think the rise of casual gaming and the mainstream success of the industry was a positive or negative development for gaming as a whole? Bungie, post Halo 3, found itself in a complex situation. With their contractual obligations to Microsoft, there was a pressing need to fulfill the three-game deal. With Halo Reach already in the spotlight, Bungie decided on a strategic move. Release a game that would not only bridge the narrative gap, but also expedite their departure from the Halo universe. This decision culminated in the release of Halo 3 ODST. Many in the gaming community perceived ODST as a quick exit strategy for Bungie, labeling it as DLC rather than a standalone game, certainly not helped by the naming scheme. This wasn't a full Halo game. There was a palpable sense of Bungie wanting to wrap things up to find closure. In many ways, ODST felt like an epilogue to Halo 3, both in its narrative elements and in its gameplay mechanics. The fact that it carried the same multiplayer system as Halo 3 with without introducing anything radically new was a testament to its DLC nature. It was Bungie cutting corners, many believed, in their eagerness to move on. Yet while ODST was a shorter and seemingly rushed game, it bore unmistakable marks of Bungie's creative ambitions. At Bungie's core was a team that was constantly striving for innovation, to challenge their own boundaries and to defy the conventional. Here, they took the universe established in Halo 2, but instead of moving forward with bombastic warfare, they took a step sideways. They introduced a new perspective, an orbital drop shock trooper wandering through the deserted streets of New Mombasa. Their film noir undertones combined with a more subdued and atmospheric storytelling approach marked ODST as a significant departure from its predecessors. This was Bungie experimenting, perhaps even laying the groundwork for future endeavors. They wanted to present the universe they had meticulously built from a different lens, less grandeur, more human, less godlike super soldier, more real-life trooper. It was a shift from wide galactic conflicts to a singular city's haunting silence under occupation. They were shedding the armor of the Master Chief and donning the uniform of a regular soldier, making players feel more vulnerable and ironically more connected to the expansive universe. One of the unique challenges for Bungie during the ODST development was balancing their intent for the game with external expectations. The game was meant to be a more budgeted, experimental exploration, yet the pressure to make it a significant release was high. The Microsoft Xbox leadership's decision to price it at $60 raised eyebrows and caused the team considerable distress. But despite this, the team's passion for storytelling remained undeterred. Bungie as a company was transitioning. ODST was more than just a product of that transition, it was a reflection of Bungie's soul at the time. In the neon streets of New Mombasa, amidst the rain and eerie quietness, one could feel Bungie's heartbeats, sometimes racing, sometimes contemplative, always passionate. ODST was a playground, a laboratory, a passion project, and a love letter to fans, all rolled into one. Furthermore, ODST also reflected Bungie meticulous craftsmanship. Their attention to detail, the layered narratives with Sadie's story, and the tantalizing Easter eggs pointing to destiny showed a team that was deeply introspective. It was as if they were leaving breadcrumbs for their fans, guiding them towards the future, while also leaving behind a part of their legacy. 
Halo Wars, a real-time strategy game set in the Halo universe, was unveiled by Microsoft at the X06 exhibition in 2006. However, its announcement came as a surprise, not just to the public, but to Bungie themselves. Unlike previous Halo titles developed under Bungie's aegis, Halo Wars was entrusted to Ensemble Studios, renowned for their Age of Empires series. Given the prominence of the Halo IP and Bungie's integral role in its creation and expansion, the studio was understandably taken aback. Their surprise was rooted not just in the fact that a new Halo game was in development, but that it was being shaped outside their purview. Adding to the fact was Bungie's assertion that they had a first right of refusal for any new Halo project. In essence, this would mean that any new proposal or idea related to the Halo franchise should first be presented to Bungie, allowing them the choice to undertake or decline the project before it was offered to another studio. Bungie's claims, if valid, meant that Microsoft had overstepped its boundaries by not consulting Bungie before greenlighting Halo Wars with Ensemble Studios. This omission, inadvertent or otherwise, planted seeds of discontent between the two. In the wake of Bungie's reservations, Microsoft issued a retort, suggesting that they had indeed approached Bungie with the concept of Halo Wars. According to Microsoft, Bungie's feedback was less than enthusiastic. They purportedly expressed reservations about the game's quality and potential, hence leading Microsoft to knock on Ensemble's doors. Whether this was a genuine miscommunication or a conscious maneuver remains a topic of speculation. Halo Wars wasn't the only instance where the Halo IP was handled outside Bungie's domain. Earlier in 2006, Halo Legends had been launched, an anime series that was not developed in partnership with Bungie. It took significant creative licenses, being received by core fans very, very poorly, amplifying the studio's concerns about the trajectory of their magnum opus. With Bungie deeply invested emotionally and creatively in the Halo universe, witness Witnessing it evolve outside their control was akin to seeing their creation drift away. While it's an oversimplification to attribute Bungie's eventual split from Microsoft solely to the Halo Wars controversy, it certainly played a part. The perceived overreach by Microsoft, coupled with other strains in their partnership, pushed Bungie towards seeking independence and their desire for autonomy, creative control, and a say in the destiny of their creations. The Halo Wars episode provides a microscopic view of the complex dynamics between game developers and publishers. IP ownership, creative liberties, communication channels, and respect for foundational contributions form a fragile ecosystem. In the Bungie Microsoft saga, Halo Wars stands out as a poignant chapter that underscores the balance, or the lack thereof, between business imperatives and creative sanctity. Killzone 2 was marketed as Sony's answer to Halo, and so this PlayStation 3 exclusive carried enormous weight on its shoulders. Killzone 2 found itself shackled to the moniker of the Halo Killer. The 2005 Killzone 2 trailer dropped Jaws, seemingly defying the limitations of console hardware at the time. It was spectacular, so spectacular that it almost seemed unreal. 
And it turns out it was. The trailer was later revealed to be a target render, essentially a best case scenario, not necessarily grounded in the reality of then current hardware capabilities. The term bullshot became a defining moment in the way we understand and critique marketing within the video game industry. Born from the smoldering skepticism after the Killzone 2 trailer fiasco, this term was a direct challenge to how the industry presents its products. Bullshots are doctored images or videos that present an unrealistically polished view of a game, artificially boosting expectations and hype. It's like Photoshop on steroids for gaming, and the fallout from its usage had ripples across the industry. Madden, for instance, would showcase trailers that demonstrated in-game movements and actions which were, quite frankly, absent from the final product. These trailers represented an idealized vision of what the developers hoped the game would be, not what it actually was. But the breakdown of trust didn't happen in a vacuum. It's essential to remember that Sony had a credibility issue not just in gaming, but also in its movie division. In the early 2000s, the company was caught inventing a fake movie critic to give glowing reviews to its films. Trust was eroding on multiple fronts, and Sony was right at the center of it. The need for Killzone 2 to be exemplary was beyond just a gaming context, it was about corporate credibility. And then there was Halo. This massive behemoth that didn't just dominate sales, but also shaped the very fabric of first-person shooters. Halo was more than a game, it was a standard bearer, the trendsetter. Its intelligent AI, cinematic storytelling, and multiplayer modes set a bar so high that every subsequent first-person shooter was almost inevitably compared to it. Halo wasn't just a game, it was a paradigm. And it's within this paradigm that Killzone 2 had to find its place. It had to be the Halo killer, a Hercules task that wasn't just about matching Halo, but toppling it. A feat as audacious as it was ultimately unattainable. It's fascinating how the gargantuan success of Halo shifted the design philosophies and marketing tactics of games like Killzone 2. The AI became smarter, the environments became more immersive, and the pressure to deliver a knockout multiplayer experience became a standard requirement, not an optional feature. The aspiration to be the Halo killer was both a driving force and a crippling weight, pushing game developers to innovate while also setting them up for nearly impossible expectations. It's this complex web of influence, be it Halo's genre-defining characteristics or the community's newly coined scrutiny through terms like bullshot that makes the story of Killzone 2 a critical chapter in the book of gaming history. What's going on? my blood. That's my blood. It's a lot of my blood. With Uncharted 2, Naughty Dog didn't just make a sequel, they refined every possible facet of the original Uncharted. The visual fidelity was astonishing, pushing the PlayStation 3 to its limits. From war-torn streets to snow-capped mountains, the settings weren't just backdrops, but interactive elements that contributed to the game's overall narrative arc. When you find yourself sneaking through a war-torn village or hanging off a cliff, the stakes are visceral and immediate because of the visual immersion. But 
beyond its cinematic allure, the game's storyline achieved something truly exceptional. It rendered its characters as deeply human, flaws and all. This sense of humanity made the extraordinary circumstances they found themselves in all the more riveting. The dialogues, the tensions, the alliance, and betrayals were all woven seamlessly into the core gameplay. This integration made for an experience where the narrative and gameplay were in constant dialogue with each other, each amplifying the other's strengths. Uncharted 2's multiplayer mode wasn't just an add-on, it was an entirely separate layer of the game that incorporated the game's core mechanics. It provided an extra dimension that extended the game's life and added a communal aspect to an otherwise solitary adventure. This ambitious approach wasn't just about increasing the game's lifespan, it was an experiment in blending narrative and community experience in an action-adventure context. Uncharted 2 made a strong case for the power of guided storytelling, creating a harmonious blend that allowed players to explore while still experiencing a tightly knit narrative that Naughty Dog wanted to tell. Uncharted's impact on the balance between authorial intent and player agency was a new model that inspired inspired numerous titles since, yet rarely gets the credit it truly deserves. Superhero games before Arkham Asylum were, let's be frank, a hit-or-miss affair, leaning mostly towards the miss. This game turned that notion on its head with its commitment to the source material. Anyone playing Arkham Asylum felt like they were donning the cowl of the Dark Knight himself, thanks to the game's immersive experience. It wasn't just a Batman game, it was a Batman simulator. From the atmosphere of the Asylum itself, rich in detail and dark undertones, to the nuanced stealth mechanics that made you feel like a predator stalking its prey, the game embraced its subject matter wholeheartedly. And let's not forget Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill reprising their roles as Batman and Joker, respectively, lending the game an authentic feel that was just missing in prior adaptations. The free-flow combat was not just a button-mashing affair, but a ballet of precise timing, situational awareness, and tactical decision-making. You couldn't just just go in fists swinging, you had to be as strategic as Batman himself, using gadgets and the environment to your advantage. This combat system became so influential that it was adopted and adapted by a slew of other titles, yet it had a subtler layer, an emotional one if you will. Each punch, each takedown had a weight to it, adding gravitas to the Dark Knight's quest, making each encounter not just a physical battle but a psychological one as well. The Asylum was wasn't just a stage for Batman's heroics, it was a character infused with secrets, lore, and easter eggs. It turned exploration into a narrative device. The Riddler's challenges scattered throughout the asylum provided not just a diversion, but an intellectual foil to Batman's brawn, requiring you to engage with the environment in ways that went beyond merely traversing it. With Demon's Souls, From Software created a game that went against the grain. With increasing attention to graphics, storytelling, and expansive worlds, game development was steadily becoming a race of budget and magnitude. In such a landscape, Demon's Souls was a maverick, unforgivingly hard, complex, and tightly focused. It didn't spell things out for you, and it didn't hold your hand. It wasn't just about the adrenaline rush of combat. Each stroke, each shield raise was a decision, 
carrying weight and consequence. Your choices mattered, and they were often the difference between survival and yet another soul-crushing defeat. This system provided a tactical depth that was often only seen in traditional role-playing games, but presented it in a real-time action environment. That interplay between combat mechanics and tactical decision-making presented a level of immersion that made you feel truly accountable for every action, every choice you made in this unforgiving world. Even the game's multiplayer elements were innovative, blurring the lines between cooperative and competitive gameplay. The groundbreaking summoning system let other players drop into your game to aid or hinder you, making every playthrough unpredictable. This asynchronous multiplayer was a harbinger of sorts, showing the ways in which online elements could be seamlessly integrated into what appeared to be a predominantly single-player experience. Demon's Souls almost didn't make it to Western audiences. Initially, there was little intention of a Western release, but then Atlas picked it up, and five months later, it was on American shelves. The lack of promotion might seem like a marketing mishap, but it worked in the game's favor. The scant marketing led to the game being a hidden gem, discovered and recommended through word of mouth making each discovery feel like unearthing a rare treasure. It might not have had the commercial success it deserved initially, but it was a vanguard, testing the waters for a new kind of gaming experience that later titles would capitalize on. Street Fighter 4 doesn't just hold a place in fighting game history, it became a lifeline for a genre that was, by all indications, on life support. When you consider the state of 2D fighting games before the release of Street Fighter 4, it was almost as if the industry had turned its back on them. The early 2000s were somewhat of a dark age for fighting games. Once giants like Capcom were quiet, especially after the less-than-stellar reception of Street Fighter 3, which, despite its merits, didn't resonate with audiences. Street Fighter 3's unpopularity wasn't just a blow to Capcom, it was a signal fire for the dire straits the genre was in. Couple this with the rise of home consoles that matched or even exceeded the capabilities of arcades, and you had a full-blown existential crisis. But then the winds started to change. Capcom dabbled in online multiplayer by re-releasing Street Fighter II Hyper Fighting in 2006, and it caught fire. It was a humble yet telling precursor to the phenomenon that Street Fighter IV would become. Street Fighter 4 didn't revolutionize the genre, but it revitalized it in an essential way. Capcom wisely chose to mix the familiar and the new, catering to nostalgia while pushing the envelope. For those who grew up mashing buttons on their SNES controllers while playing Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 4 felt like a homecoming. But it was more than just a stroll down memory lane. New mechanics like ultra combos and focus attacks injected a fresh dynamism into the gameplay. These weren't mere gimmicks, they evolved the tactical depth of the game, allowing more nuanced counterattacks and parries. While keeping a firm grip on its roots, Street Fighter IV extended its branches to touch a new sky. It was a delicate balancing act, but one that Capcom pulled off spectacularly. Secondly, its online functionality. In an era where Tekken 6 was stumbling with its online interface, Street Fighter 4 felt like a breath of fresh air. This is particularly significant when you consider the decline of arcades and how essential online play would become for the genre. Its functional matchmaking, tournament modes, and low input delay set a new standard for online fighting games. Here, the multiplayer couch extended beyond your living room and spread across the globe, fostering a robust community that still thrives today. But let's not overlook its impact on the 
competitive scene, especially in the Evolution Championship Series, or EVO. When Street Fighter 4 was included in the roster, it boasted over 1,040 entrants three times more than any other game. That's not merely a statistic, it's a testament to the game's capacity to engage and mobilize a community. It showed developers and publishers alike that the fighting game genre could be a viable, lucrative avenue again. Other companies took note and soon we saw a renaissance in the genre. We often forget that the success or failure of a game has ripples that extend beyond its immediate ecosystem. Street Fighter 4's success nudged other developers to invest in their 2D fighting titles. It also popularized the 2.5D style, providing a middle ground for those torn between the nostalgia of 2D and the allure of 3D. It's as if Street Fighter 4 said, you don't have to choose, you can have both. 2009's bonus levels encapsulate the diverse shifts the industry was undergoing. Plants vs. Zombies is often hailed as an accessible tower defense game, but it did something more nuanced than simply break down genre barriers. One aspect often overlooked is how it acted as a soft entry point for people into the world of real-time strategy. The game cleverly disguised its complex mechanics behind a veneer of whimsicality. On the surface, it's a charming, animated, horticultural battle against the undead, but dig a little deeper and you'll find layers of strategy that attract both casual and hardcore gamers. There was serious design wisdom in having an escalating set of challenges that introduced mechanics one at a time. First, you just had to worry about one type of zombie, then multiple types, and eventually you'd find yourself juggling different plant abilities and managing resources, all while trying to keep your brains uneaten. This game managed to teach complex strategic thinking in the guise of a garden variety pastime, pardon the pun. It created a cultural moment and managed to do something most games in the genre could not. It made the genre appealing to people who normally wouldn't be caught dead or undead in this case, playing video games. Add in its appeal to microtransaction markets, and it's clear why Plants vs. Zombies was emblematic of gaming's new ubiquity and commercial viability. Now, moving on to The Beatles Rock Band. There's no underestimating the significance of digitally immortalizing the Beatles music catalog in game format. Think about it. This happened a year before their songs were available on iTunes. This was the first time the Beatles music was available in a digital format. It's a marriage of pop culture history and interactive media that neither dilutes the essence of the music nor trivializes the gaming experience. It spoke to a bigger story, how video games were becoming a new venue for experiencing and re-experiencing classic art forms. I mean, consider this, you had a generation that may have never actively sought out the Beatles music, now deeply engaged with these iconic tracks. They weren't just listening, they were interacting with each song, learning its nuances, mastering its rhythm. The game became an interactive museum of sorts, a living archive that kept the Beatles' legacy not just alive, but interactive. It also exemplified how games were moving beyond their primary function as entertainment devices and stepping into the realm of experiential education and historical preservation. 
Angry Birds, to most people, is often reduced to its simple mechanics. Angry Birds took the concept of slingshots and disgruntled fowls and turned it into a multi-billion dollar franchise. But here's something worth noting. The game capitalized on the rise of smartphones and showcased the future of mobile advertising. Angry Birds was one of the first early adopters of ad revenue-based business models in mobile gaming. The game was free, but the advertising within was targeted, opening up new revenue streams and effectively demonstrating to developers how profitable in-app advertising could be. Angry Birds was more than just a hit game, it was a signal to the world that mobile gaming had matured enough to produce blockbuster titles, challenging traditional gaming platforms. Fat Princess can be seen as an early exploration into blending different genres, a capture-the-flag premise blended with role-playing elements. You could change classes, strategize with teammates, and the game even added a layer of moral dilemma, critiquing traditional damsel-in-distress narratives by quite literally adding weight to the princess you're supposed to rescue. It was both a callback to older genres and a forward-looking experiment in narrative subversion and gameplay mechanics. Most importantly, however, it was one of the best-selling games on the PlayStation Network, not just because it was well-designed, but because it symbolized Sony's competitive counterpoint to Xbox Live Arcade. Fat Princess arrived at a time when Sony was still trying to establish the PlayStation Network as a formidable contender to Microsoft's online storefront, and boy, did it deliver. In a way, it validated the PSN store as a marketplace for original, high-quality titles. Lastly, PlayStation Home. This is the one platform amongst these that aimed to be more than just a game. It sought to become a virtual society. It was Sony's experiment in creating a digital ecosystem within its gaming universe. Even if it didn't fully succeed in terms of execution, it was a visionary step forward in imagining what integrated social experiences within gaming consoles could look like. It was a primitive version of a metaverse, long before terms like virtual reality became household names. In 2010, indie games continued their meteoric rise in popularity. Pioneering initiatives like the Humble Bundle burst onto the scene, offering a pay-what-you-want model that both appealed to gamers and supported indie developers. Kickstarter emerged as a funding avenue for games that traditional publishers had long deemed unmarketable. Even indie gems like Cave Story were grabbing their share of critical acclaim alongside major titles. With gaming innovation accelerating at breakneck speed, motion controls like the Kinect and PlayStation Move unlocked new gaming possibilities. So what did the average gamer think about the future of video games in 2010? With such an array of innovations and a diverse selection of games, it's easy to imagine gamers buzzing with excitement and anticipation for what lay ahead. In just a decade, the gaming world had underwent a dramatic transformation. In 2000, mobile gaming was a mere shadow of its future self, limited to rudimentary games like Snake on early Nokia phones. But the 2007 iPhone release transformed mobile gaming forever. Social media platforms like Facebook also offered new opportunities, with games like Farmville and Mafia Wars amassing millions of daily active users. Back in 2000, the gaming industry was still reveling in the 3D graphics introduced during the late 90s. 
90s. By 2010, technology had advanced, allowing for more realistic graphics, enhanced physics engines, and the integration of sophisticated artificial intelligence. That same decade witnessed the rise of online gaming, with multiplayer-focused titles like Counter-Strike, EverQuest, and Diablo 2 leading the charge. By 2010, online gaming had exploded in popularity, thanks to seamless multiplayer experiences offered by services like Xbox Live and the newly revealed PlayStation Network, and digital distribution platforms like Steam dominating game sales. The introduction of paid multiplayer services like PlayStation Plus and Xbox Live Gold had both positive and negative aspects. On the positive side, these services provided a stable and secure environment for online multiplayer gaming, offering free games monthly and gave subscribers access to exclusive discounts. On the downside, these services essentially put multiplayer gaming behind a paywall which was a departure from the previous norm where multiplayer was a standard feature included with the purchase of a game. This meant that players had to pay an additional fee on top of the cost of their games and consoles to play with others online. Adding more costs to multiplayer gaming, EA's Project $10 came to fruition in 2010, with many in the industry jumping on board. This initiative was a form of digital rights management, introduced to restrict access to certain online content and combat the second-hand purchase of games. Online passes were single-use codes that granted access to multiplayer modes and other online content. They served as a revenue stream for publishers and encouraged players to buy new copies of games to access full content. Critics, however, argued that online passes might limit essential functionality and prevent the resale of video games. How did the indie game scene reshape the overall gaming landscape from 1980 to 2010? How did the rapid advancement of technology mold gaming experiences and expectations, and what challenges did the industry grapple with in trying to cater to the desires of both casual and hardcore gamers? The concept of open-world games wasn't particularly new. Games like Grand Theft Auto and Assassin's Creed had already acclimatized gamers to expansive settings, but Red Dead Redemption changed the calculus on how to populate that open world. Until then, open-world games often sacrificed depth for breadth. They were big, but often shallow. In Red Dead Redemption, every NPC felt lived in, each with their own history and personality. Towns had dynamics decisions had consequences. Essentially, Rockstar brought a level of granularity and detail to the world that wasn't just ornamental, but structural. It contributed to the gameplay, the narrative, and the overall immersive experience. And we can't ignore the significance of the morality system. Now, karma systems existed before, but none had been woven so intrinsically into the game's fabric. It didn't just affect dialogue or endings, it influenced how NPCs reacted to you, what missions you could undertake, and even the game's economy. It was a full-bodied representation of choice and consequence that many games have tried to emulate since, but seldom with the same finesse. Unlike many other open-world games that rely on cutscenes or dialogue to convey their story, Red Dead Redemption used the environment itself as a narrative device. The transition from the lawless, untamed landscapes of New Austin to the more industrialized, conflict-ridden Nuevo Paraiso didn't just represent a change in 
scenery, it encapsulated the overarching theme of the Wild West's decline and the inevitable march of civilization. Here, the world wasn't just a playground, it was a character, a storyteller, and a critic all rolled into one. Of course, the year 2010 isn't just a timestamp, it's context. We were well into the seventh console generation, with the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 being at their peak. It was a time when consoles began to rival PCs, not just in graphics, but in their ability to create complex, dynamic worlds. The success of Red Dead Redemption reaffirmed that console gaming was not merely catching up to its PC counterpart, but in some aspects, surpassing it, pushing both platforms towards a future where the delineation became increasingly blurred. Yet despite these groundbreaking elements, one aspect that often escapes criticism is the controversial issue of retailer-exclusive pre-order bonuses. The rise of retailer-specific pre-order incentives, while lucrative for both developers and retailers, raised serious concerns about consumer access to complete content. In order to snag all of Red Dead Redemption pre-order bonuses, one would have to purchase the game from 11 different retailers, costing a staggering $659.89 at the minimum. And that's for 17 pre-order bonuses distributed across 9 countries, making up 11 unique editions. This practice, championed by retailers as adding consumer value, is seen by many gamers as a divisive strategy that fragments the game experience and arguably exploits the fan base. Such practices are on top of other monetization strategies like online passes and the emerging trend of card packs or loot boxes which have garnered much attention in sports games but haven't become ubiquitous in other genres yet. BioWare wasn't the new kid on the block, far from it. They'd already earned a reputation for groundbreaking RPG titles like Baldur's Gate, Dragon Age, and of course, the original Mass Effect. But Mass Effect 2 was something else. It took lessons from its predecessors and scaled up the ambition to an unprecedented level. Where the original Mass Effect served as a template, the sequel polished every facet of that blueprint to a mirror sheen. When you talk about memorable characters in gaming, names like Garrus, Thane, and Jack come up, and they all come from Mass Effect 2. Each squad member had a loyalty mission that wasn't just a side quest, it was a journey into their psyche. These missions weren't mere filler, they were critical to the endgame. Whether your team survived the suicide mission depended on your decisions during these character arcs. Not only did this heighten player investment, but it also added substantial replay value. It's not hyperbole to say that the character depth in Mass Effect 2 became the benchmark for subsequent RPGs. Now, branching narratives were hardly new in 2010, but Bioware took the concept to a new zenith by creating a complex tapestry of choices with actual consequences. It wasn't just about being a paragon or a renegade, your decisions had both immediate and delayed repercussions that echoed throughout the game and even into the third installment. The branching narrative was a narrative web, entangling players in its ethical quandaries and interpersonal dramas. By forcing players to make meaningful choices, Mass Effect 2 created a gameplay environment that felt more nuanced and far less binary than many other RPGs at the time. 
However, Mass Effect 2 wasn't all talk, Bioware overhauled the combat mechanics, moving from a somewhat clunky system in the original game to a refined cover-based third-person shooter format. It made the action sequences as engaging as the dialogue trees, a true balancing act not often seen in RPGs. The enhanced gameplay mechanics demonstrated that an RPG could deliver on both the story and action fronts without compromising one for the sake of the other. Fallout New Vegas, a game that sits right alongside Mass Effect 2 as one of the most celebrated RPGs, serves to capture the state and aspirations of the video game industry at that time. It became a commentary on the gaming industry itself, embodying the struggles and challenges game developers faced. Obsidian Entertainment ventured into treacherous waters when they accepted the task of delivering Fallout New Vegas just a couple years after Bethesda's own Fallout 3, but they did it with finesse. One of the standout aspects of the game was a mature narrative tone, in contrast to the slightly more action-oriented Fallout 3. The post-apocalyptic Las Vegas setting was rife with political struggles, a rich lore that deep-dived into local factions, and a gray moral landscape that made players think long and hard about their choices. The reputation system was designed in such a way that your decisions didn't just affect the immediate storyline, but had longer-reaching consequences in the game world, influencing how NPCs reacted and which quests became available. It felt like the decisions you made carried weight, an evolution from Fallout 3's somewhat binary karma system. Certainly good enough for an 84 out of 100 on Metacritic. It's just too bad that Obsidian only got a bonus if it hit 85. The fact that Obsidian missed out on a bonus by a single Metacritic point underscores a darker chapter in gaming history. Let's take a moment to realize how how absurd it was that financial incentives were tied to an aggregate score on a review website. It speaks to the troubling, corporatized mentality of treating games like mere commodities to be rated on a scorecard rather than as intricate works of art that they are. This only becomes more concerning as more evidence comes out that companies like Bunker 15 were paying critics to boost or tank scores on Rotten Tomatoes. There is a palpable irony that a game like New Vegas, designed to make players question every moral choice, ended up becoming the casualty of an oversimplistic, almost binary system of appraisal. So what's fundamentally wrong with attaching a numerical value to a game? The problem starts with the illusion of objectivity. A score, particularly one on a 10 or 100 point scale, creates an impression that the game's quality can be precisely measured. It suggests that there is some objective standard that all games can be held against, but here's the catch, no two gamers will play a game and experience it exactly the same way, just as no two reviewers will have identical criteria for what makes a game good or bad. Let's consider IGN, a giant in game journalism. The review scores on this platform are not solely determined by the individual reviewer, but often by an editorial team. This creates an atmosphere where the reviewer's nuanced view can get lost in the process, raising questions about the scoring system's reliability. A single reviewer's score is subjective, sure, but at least it's a clear lens through which to interpret a game. When the score is an amalgamation of opinions, it ceases to be a useful barometer for a potential player's enjoyment. 
unemployment. Another issue is the inflation of scores over time. A decade ago, a 5 out of 10 meant mediocre. Today, it's often interpreted as an abomination. This shift suggests that the scale isn't static. It's distorted and varies not just from outlet to outlet, but also across time periods within the same outlet. Essentially, the 7 to 9 range has become the new normal, the new mediocre, so to speak, and that's problematic when you're trying to gauge a game's merits. A more nuanced approach might involve ditching the numerical score altogether. Consider long-form reviews, the kind that delve into the nuances that take into account the game's historical and genre-specific context, its design philosophy, and its socio-cultural implications. These are the reviews that offer us the most comprehensive understanding of a game, allowing us to consider it as a complex, multifaceted creation rather than a product to be measured on an arbitrary scale. Moreover, the comparison of scores across different games is often like comparing apples and oranges. How can one meaningfully compare the score of a narrative-driven game like New Vegas against a sports simulation or a real-time strategy game? Each caters to a different set of gamer expectations and needs to be assessed on its own terms. While interpreting reviews, understanding the context and preferences of the reviewer becomes crucial. A score may provide a quick, albeit flawed, snapshot, but reading a reviewer's detailed opinions can guide you towards a much more personalized decision about whether a game is right for you. This situation laid bare the shortcomings of the then-prevailing game review system. We're not talking about the in-depth analysis some outlets offer, but rather the number that's plastered at the end of the review. It's a disservice to both the developers and the gaming audience. Scores, often decided by an editorial team rather than the individual reviewer, lack context. They don't reflect the evolving standards or the varying tastes and perspectives that come into play. Many games, including New Vegas, have been victims of this system, which saw its implications extend to layoffs and project cancellations at Obsidian. And if we can think even more broadly here, it adds a layer to the continued dialogue about the increasing corporatization of game development. The scale and greed of some of these larger companies contrasts sharply with the indie space, where games are often developed with passion over profit, exposing the creative chasm between the two. As we consider Fallout New Vegas in its historical context, the missed Metacritic bonus wasn't just a business footnote. It represents an industry grappling with its own ideas identity. Limbo serves as a crystallization of where the indie gaming space was headed, a trajectory that defined the conventional wisdom of what video games were supposed to be. One of those striking elements that set Limbo apart from its contemporaries was its minimalistic art style. At a time when major studios were pushing for photorealistic graphics and complex textures, Limbo went the other way. The game's grayscale palette and shadowy art not only provided a haunting atmosphere, but also conveyed emotions and story elements in a very raw, stripped-down way. While other developers were busy adding layers, Limbo successfully peeled them away, proving that sometimes less truly is more. Limbo's puzzle mechanics weren't just obstacles to keep you from point A to point B. Each puzzle was a storytelling device, a way to build the world around you and push the narrative without uttering a single word. There was a duality at work here. The puzzles were simultaneously a gameplay mechanic and a narrative 
tool. The spikes, traps, and spiders you encountered were all contributors to the game's morbid aesthetic. You didn't just solve puzzles, you navigated a story of danger and dread. The game seamlessly blended mechanics and story in a way that most AAA titles were still struggling to achieve. Remember, this was the era of Farmville and Angry Birds, a time when the term social gaming was thrown around as the future of the industry. But Limbo resisted these trends. It wasn't social, it wasn't flashy, and it certainly wasn't casual. It was a solitary, intense experience, a challenge to the creeping monetization and gamification strategies invading the gaming world. This act of rebellion, of insisting that a game can be artful, emotional, and challenging all at once, reverberated throughout the industry. Super Meat Boy wasn't just hard, it was designed to be a masterstroke in precise controls and immediate response. You felt as though you were truly embedded in its pixelated world, and any failure or slip-up could only be attributed to your skill level, not game lag or faulty mechanics. In an era when minigames were focusing on easy engagement, optional in-game purchases, and lowering the learning curve, Super Meat Boy defiantly swam against the tide. It reminded everyone of the joy that comes from conquering a near-impossible challenge through nothing but your own skill and persistence. This game reignited interest in the unforgiving but gratifying platformers of the past like Mega Man and Castlevania, further setting the stage for the retro renaissance in the following years. Yet the journey of Team Meat during the game's development is equally captivating. Many know the story of their financial challenges and health setbacks, but let's not just brush it off as a footnote. It illustrates a darker underbelly of the indie development scene, an environment that often demands everything and offers only uncertainty in return. The disappointment the developers felt when Xbox Live Arcade failed to provide the promised spotlight was not just a personal setback for the team, it represented the hurdles indie developers face when they lack the cushioning of big publishers. Team Meat wasn't just making a game, they were navigating an obstacle course in the industry, trying to pay bills and survive as an indie developer, and it was every bit as perilous as Super Meat Boy's own blades and spikes. It's also fascinating to look at the game's impact on the streamer culture that was nascent at the time. Super Meat Boy was perfect for this burgeoning community. Its challenging levels offered dramatic tension, its successes were extremely rewarding, and its failures were often spectacular. In short, it was a game designed to be watched as much as it was designed to be played, contributing to the symbiotic relationship between gaming and live streaming that has become so intrinsic to the industry today. StarCraft II was a leap ahead, with improved graphics, new units, and a more engaging single-player campaign. These enhancements were not just superficial, they changed how the game was played at a fundamental level. For instance, the game mechanics and the nature of unit interactions were so tweaked that players had to unlearn some Brood War habits to master StarCraft II. It almost felt like switching from chess to 3D chess. It didn't just add new layers, it altered the core gameplay experience. In a way, that's an inevitable consequence of any sequel that aims to innovate, but it also means it's going to alienate some die-hard fans who loved the first installment exactly 
smoothly as it was. Also a big change, with the game's close integration with Battle.net, piracy became less of an option. This may sound like a win for Blizzard, but it came at the expense of the game's grassroots appeal, especially in places like Korea's PC Bongs. These gaming cafes had to pay per seat for StarCraft II, making them less inclined to offer the game when cheaper or even free alternatives were available. When you couple that with the rise of games like League of Legends, which was pulling from the same pool of RTS fans and had become a free-to-play sensation, the uphill battle for StarCraft II becomes much more apparent. Then there was the messiness involving KESPA, the Korean Esports Association. After a protracted legal battle with Blizzard over Brood War, KESPA wasn't eager to jump into an even tighter legal framework. Instead of promoting the new game, they were actively campaigning against it, which left StarCraft II with a stigma in the esports community. It became the game of has-beens, populated by players considered lesser than those who stayed with Brood War. The game found itself facing an existential crisis before it even had a chance to establish its own identity. StarCraft II was heavily geared towards competitive 1v1 play, which, while exhilarating, may not be everyone's cup of tea. In Brood War, custom games and team plays offered a less intense but equally engaging experience. By focusing so much on competitive play, StarCraft II inadvertently narrowed its appeal, making it less accessible to newcomers or casual players who may find 1v1 too daunting. StarCraft II would serve as a power reminder of the challenges that come with trying to follow up on a genre-defining game. Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker is an enigmatic installment in the Metal Gear series, often overlooked despite its profound impact on the franchise. Released exclusively for the PlayStation Portable, the timing and platform choice may have led to it being eclipsed by other titles. By 2010, the portable gaming market was dominated by Nintendo's DS line, but Sony's PSP was no slouch. It had its particular niche, offering more robust, console-like experiences on the go. Hideo Kojima's decision to launch Peace Walker on the PSP made a bold statement about the potential for complex, nuanced games in a portable format. It wasn't merely a watered-down Metal Gear title, it carried much of the narrative weight and mechanical intricacy that you'd expect from a home console release. However, the PSP as a platform was often perceived as secondary to its console counterparts. While the game did eventually receive an HD remaster for consoles, the initial launch on a portable device led to an underestimation of its importance within the Metal Gear series. That brings us to the narrative element. Peace Walker is an essential bridge between Metal Gear Solid 3 and Metal Gear Solid 4 The Phantom Pain, both critically and chronologically within the lore. The narrative moves the story of Big Boss forward in significant ways, with monumental shifts and character development that sets the stage for the cataclysmic events in The Phantom Pain. Moreover, the mechanics you adore in MGS5 didn't materialize out of nowhere. Many were present in Peace Walker, albeit in a more rudimentary form. For instance, the game incorporated base management elements that allowed players to recruit and assign personnel to various departments, impacting your resources and abilities. This system was a game-changer for the franchise, adding a layer of strategy and resource management that elevated the gameplay complexity. It also served as a sort of precursor 
answer to the multiplayer features we would later see expanded upon in The Phantom Pain, providing a testing ground for these mechanics that would become more refined in future installments. Let's kick off with God of War 3. There are blockbuster hits and then there's God of War 3. A storm of unbridled chaos and catharsis that sold half a million more copies than its predecessor in just the first week. Sure, the game capitalized on the appeal of mythological hack and slash, but it did more than that. It defied expectations for what a narrative finale could look like, both technically and thematically. It was a triumph in capturing the end of an era for the PlayStation 3, exploiting the console's hardware capabilities in a way few other titles did. This game took the player through the ringer emotionally and experientially, starting with the grandeur of Olympus and crash into the depths of the underworld. In short, God of War 3 elevated what could have been a run-of-the-mill revenge saga into an epic odyssey by fine-tuning the emotional resonance of its mechanics and settings. This level of nuance, often relegated to the margins of discussion, is what made it a tentpole title, encapsulating the industry's shift towards grander, more cinematic experiences. Contrast that with Mega Man 10, a game that seems like an outlier in an age where cutting-edge graphics and sprawling storylines were becoming the norm. Here, the developers at Capcom paid a love-filled homage to the past, not just in aesthetics, but also in gameplay. And it was in this seemingly simple package that Mega Man 10 presented an intriguing argument. Could we revitalize retro gameplay without sacrificing modern design principles? Now, this wasn't mere nostalgia pandering, it was a calculated decision to scrutinize what made the original series work so well. In a time when the gaming industry was obsessed with photorealism and cinematic storytelling, Mega Man 10 argued for the enduring appeal of simplicity. What's often forgotten is how this game managed to achieve balance, incorporating challenging gameplay without alienating newcomers, a fine line that not all retro revival games managed to walk. Unlike many throwback titles that operated on the difficult equals good principle, Mega Man 10 offered different difficulty settings, a perfect example of preserving retro charm while adapting to contemporary needs. This was a calculated response to a problem that the industry grappled with, how to honor the past while being inclusive to a broader gaming audience. Turning to Alan Wake and the growing influence of Adver games, the Verizon Achievement ad showcased a transitional period for in-game advertising. What was truly paradigm-shifting wasn't merely the inclusion of an ad, but the subtle yet potent way that advertising was integrated into the gameplay itself. When we talk about this title, we're not just referring to an isolated instance of product placement. Before this, most video games that included advertisements were doing just that, including them as static, non-interactive elements. You could walk past a billboard in Grand Theft Auto, for example, but you'd rarely, if ever, interact with it in a way that felt consequential. Alan Wake bucked that trend by embedding the ad as an achievement, a milestone within the game that players could strive for. This was a substantial evolution from the previously detached nature of in-game advertising. The achievement not only acknowledged the advertisement, but also enticed the player to engage with it. 
to make it a part of their gaming experience. It was this interactivity, this gamification of the advertising content that set the stage for what we could expect from in-game advertising going forward. This nuanced approach contrasted sharply with the sledgehammer subtlety of advert games like Sneak King or Doritos Crash Course. While these games were entirely built around the brand, their very essence oozing product placement, they often felt gimmicky and heavy-handed. Their primary function was to be a marketing vehicle first and a game second, which often led to an unbalanced, less than satisfying gaming experience. What Alan Wake achieved was far more integrated and sophisticated. Here the ad wasn't a diversion or a sideshow, but a piece of the larger narrative and gameplay puzzle. In effect, Alan Wake demonstrated that you could create a critically acclaimed, well-crafted game while still incorporating advertisements in an interactive and meaningful manner. It's a model that showcases the potential for a symbiotic relationship between game developers and advertisers, one where the advertising doesn't just reside in the game world, but adds an extra layer of interaction, becoming an integral part of the world. While the success of this approach is still open to debate, it's crucial to recognize that Alan Wake represented a watershed moment. It asked a question that the industry needed to grapple with. Can advertisements be more than just billboards on the side of a virtual highway? Can they be milestones, elements of gameplay, even narrative devices? And as we ponder these questions, it's worth noting that what Alan Wake offered was an alternative to the advert games of its time. One that could enrich both the business of gaming and the art form itself. It showcased a way to uphold the integrity of a game's design while still providing opportunities for revenue generation beyond the conventional channels. With Metroid Other M, the real story isn't its failure, but rather its ambitious attempt to break from the mold. Yoshio Sakamoto's desire for a cinematic and seamless experience was nothing short of groundbreaking for a Nintendo title. But this ambition came with pitfalls, the most significant being the conflict with Nintendo's established philosophy of gameplay over narrative. The process was further muddled by the involvement of Team Ninja, injecting the DNA of their action-heavy style into a franchise not traditionally known for that. Perhaps the most telling example of its overreach was how the game's focus on cinematics led it to exceed the storage limits of a single-layered Wii disc, a hurdle that forced the team to make some painful cuts. The upshot? The game felt disconnected, caught between conflicting visions, and ended up lacking in some of the franchise's most cherished elements, like rewarding exploration and meaningful progression. In that sense, it serves as a cautionary tale, highlighting the potential pitfalls of diverging too far from a game series' foundational elements. The resulting product felt fragmented, like a patchwork of disparate visions, which led to it being a more linear experience, contrary to the explorative soul of Metroid games. And what of Assassin's Creed Brotherhood? That title brought something that few expected. A multiplayer element to a fundamentally single-player experience. This was a turning point, signaling that the serialization of non-COD games could be just as compelling and financially rewarding. Brotherhood demonstrated that the mechanics of a historically single-player series could be adapted to offer a multiplayer experience. The result was a blueprint for other story-driven franchises, a 
testament to how richly layered games can benefit from multiplayer modes without sacrificing narrative depth. Finally, Sonic Colors found itself in an interesting predicament. Sega had decided to remove all Sonic games scoring 75 or lower on Metacritic, stating that they were doing this to prevent brand dilution and make sure players understood the quality of Sonic games. Ironically, Sonic Colors landed exactly at 75, spotlighting a tension between quality control and the financial realities of game development. This awkward position for Sega emphasized the risk of using Metascores as the lone metric of a game's value, raising questions about how companies should best protect and elevate their brand in an increasingly competitive market. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>